Well, we'd like to welcome you to Plum Creek Chapel this morning as we uh, get started with our <clears throat> Bible study hour. We're uh, taking a look at the, the study of the end times, which uh, in theological terms is called eschatology, and we've been studying this for many, many months now, well over a year, almost a year and a half, um, if you count in the breaks and things when I've been gone and so forth. Uh, but we are uh, getting closer and closer toward wrapping up this series. I spent some time this week preparing for the next section, which we're going to talk about a prelude to the eternal state and then talk about the eternal state itself. And then we'll probably have a review session and sort of tie it all together. Uh, but uh, right now we're in the midst of studying uh, the study of the millennium. What does the Bible say about the millennium? And today we don't have a whole lot more uh, to, to, to kind of cover to finish out uh, what the Bible says about the millennium. So I'm hoping we can have a little time left today for some Q&A. And then next week or next time, I'll be gone next week, but next time we will uh, get into the eternal state. But as we begin today, let me mention a couple of quick announcements. I hope you are either watching the videos or joining us uh, in person on Wednesday nights, our midweek Bible study. We're talking about what is Calvinism and is it biblical? Uh, really enjoying that. It's just an invigorating, encouraging, edifying discussion. Uh, and, of course, that's live streamed like all of our messages. So you can live stream it at 6 o'clock Mountain or you can join us in person. So I hope you'll come back out this Wednesday for that. Uh, Tuesdays, I'm always a guest on the Christian Underground News Network podcast, and this past week was a pretty powerful uh, topic uh, called The Facts About COVID Two Years Later, and uh, we discussed some recent findings and revelations there uh, from uh, Pfizer and the FDA, and so I hope you'll check that out as well. And then I'm looking forward to my uh, opportunity to speak to the Elbert County Stands Up group in Elbert County. Uh, it's going to be hosted by Majestic View Church, which is a pretty good-sized church. I'm, I'm actually going to be having coffee tomorrow with the pastor there, John Smith. Looking forward to meeting him and uh, uh, really looking forward to that event. So that's on Sunday, uh, but it's at 2 o'clock, so hopefully our Plum Creek folks will uh, maybe uh, consider after church grabbing a bite to eat and then heading over to Majestic View Church in Kiowa uh, for the 2 o'clock event there. It's uh, Slated to be two hours, I'm going to speak for about an hour and then open the floor for questions. And the topic is the Great Satanic Reset, what to know and how to prepare. And uh, we will be uh, touching on uh, the latest book, Spirit of the Antichrist, The Gathering Cloud of Deception, at that event. And uh, so if you don't have that yet, uh, certainly you can pick one up in the lobby here at Plum Creek, or you can go to spiritoftheantichrist.org and uh, check that out. So with that, uh, let's uh, continue our look at the millennium, and uh, this is our sixth week to really hone in. We talked about social characteristics, geographic characteristics, uh, uh, spiritual characteristics of the kingdom or the millennium, and we're in the midst of talking about some uh, other just generic characteristics. And to put this in uh, perspective uh, time-wise or chronologically, Remember, if you look on the chart here on the screen in the far left, we are currently living in the church age. Obviously, this is not drawn to scale. This is focused in on the end times to show you some of the details about God's end times plan. So you see the cross there in red. That, of course, represents the death and resurrection of Christ. 
Uh, and then uh, 50 days after his resurrection, on the day of Pentecost, the church was founded, according to Acts chapter 2. Um, that is not speculation, by the way. We can demonstrate uh, emphatically from Scripture that indeed the church began as a new dispensation, a new uh, era in God's plan of the ages on the day of Pentecost. In fact, in our uh, 10 o'clock hour, we're studying the book of Acts, and we're uh, coming up to uh, chapter 11. We'll be in chapter 10 again today, talking about Peter and Cornelius and that fascinating encounter. But that story about Peter and Cornelius, which we began last week, actually bleeds over into chapter 11, because in chapter 11 of Acts, Peter has to give an account to the early church leaders who are a little bit concerned that these... Uh, you know, dirty, rotten Gentiles are getting saved by grace, and they kind of wanted to know, what's this all about? And so Peter retells the story uh, in Jerusalem of what happened with uh, Cornelius, uh, and, and it's in the context of his retelling of the story that he refers back to the day of Pentecost as the beginning. And uh, we know from what Jesus said in Acts chapter 1 that uh, the church, that the Holy Spirit would come and baptize believers. We know that that occurred at Pentecost. We know that Paul later would describe that baptism as forming the church, the body of Christ, which he calls the church. So the church was formed on the day of Pentecost through the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which was called a beginning by Peter. So that's how we know that the church began on the day of Pentecost. So back to our chart. So that happened shortly after. So if you're looking at the chart, it would be, here's Here's the crucifixion and resurrection. Fifty days later, the church begins. And then this section here, obviously not drawn to scale, is the present age. We are currently living in the present church age. But at some point, uh, known only to God in the future, the rapture is going to occur. God's going to rescue the church from this present evil age prior to the great day of the Lord's wrath. And uh, so if you look at the, a panoramic view of God's plan of the ages you see that we're living in the last days right now. The Bible calls this age the last days. Uh, but the next age to come is the kingdom. And you see in the top right corner of this chart how the tribulation or that final seven-year period in Daniel's 490-year plan uh, is a transition into the kingdom. Now, some people think of the tribulation, which you see takes up most of the screen here in the middle there, uh, that seven-year tribulation, or Daniel's 70th week. Remember, week is the Hebrew word Shabua. It means seven-year period in Daniel. Uh, or it's called the time of Jacob's trouble by the prophet Jeremiah, uh, or Israel's trouble. It's called the day of the Lord's wrath, the overflowing scourge, many other descriptions of it. Um, but some people take that seven-year period as its own dispensation. Uh, I don't take it that way, but it's not a big deal. The Bible obviously doesn't set forth explicitly in a certain verse, thus saith the Lord, here are the dispensations. We simply observe God's teaching in Scripture and God's transition through the ages of interacting with mankind, and we sort of identify different ways in which he did that. Uh, this is the most commonly uh, understood uh, approach to, to God's plan of the ages, but I wouldn't necessarily die on that hill. Uh, and there's nothing magical about the number seven either. Some people would, if they include the tribulation, might include eight. Uh, or if they separate out the millennial phase of the kingdom, as you see over there toward the end where it says millennium, from the eternal state, they might even have nine. Um, I uh, don't tend to get down to that granular level. 
Uh, plus, you know, as a good dispensationalist, we like the number seven. So I, I'm happy with seven dispensations. Um, but anyway, we're, these, these are not something that, you know, we can point to a chapter and verse and say, thus saith the Lord. Uh, it just comes from an observation. You know, the term dispensation is a biblical term. We talked about this many weeks ago, and I talk about it in the opening chapters of the book. By the way, the book is What Lies Ahead, a biblical overview of the end times. And we're kind of loosely tracking with that. I've taken some diversions based on some of your questions, and we've looked at some different things along the way. But uh, if you get to the end of the book is where we're talking about the millennium, the eternal state, and those types of things, what lies ahead. And you can certainly pick up a copy out in the lobby uh, or pick one up at notbyworks.org. Uh, but, uh, you know, again, uh, as, as we see the term dispensation used in Ephesians chapter 3, we understand it to be an economy or a stewardship, a, a, a time in which God gave different responsibilities to mankind. does not mean different methods of salvation. Uh, the method, one and only method of salvation from Genesis to Revelation, from Adam to the end of the age, is uh, grace by grace through faith. Uh, only one way to receive justification and be declared righteous before a holy God, and that's by faith. Uh, so we're not talking about different ways of salvation. Sometimes people that criticize dispensationalists mistakenly and carelessly will say, oh, they teach different ways of salvation. Not true, never been true. They can't point to any dispensationalist who said that. That's a, a straw man. Uh, you know, basically, if you go back to the original Schofield Reference Bible, the 1917 version, you know, he was not always clear, and sometimes you know, it may sound like that's what he's saying. Uh, but if you read the corpus of Schofield's writings, you know that's not what he was saying. Uh, and in the subsequent revised edition that John Walvert headed up, it's very clear that that's not what he teaches. But uh, uh, it's not different ways of salvation. It's just different stewardships. It's clear, it should be clear, that, for example, Adam and Eve interacted differently with God in their day than we do today. I mean, that seems clear enough, uh, as did Noah in his day. And Obviously, we're not under the law, so God's people during the age of law interacted with God through the law. They were required to keep the law, not to be saved, but in order to, to interact with God. That was the paradigm that he set up. Today, we have the law written on our hearts, as we talked about, uh, I think it was last week, law and grace. Uh, and so uh, we're not under the law. We're, the law is written on our hearts. That is the indwelling Holy Spirit. And so it's a different era. So uh, back to our kind of overview chart, we, we went through the tribulation. I mean, we didn't go through the tribulation, but we went through the study of the tribulation. And, uh, and then we talked about the return of Christ, the battle of Armageddon. And uh, then uh, now we're talking about the messianic kingdom, the long-awaited kingdom. And the first thousand years of that are on the old heaven and the old earth. And we we looked previously at some of the contrasts between the millennium and the eternal state, and clearly they're not the same thing. And uh, we are going to talk more about the eternal state in the weeks to come. Uh, really looking forward to that. Um, but in the meantime, let's just review the uh, characteristics. So it involves an increase in territory uh, for the nation of uh, Israel. It involves topographical changes. Uh, the center of the world's worship becomes Jerusalem. Jerusalem itself is enlarged. Its name is even changed. The Jews are regathered into the land supernaturally. Uh, the land's desolate conditions are healed. Then we see 
Uh, socially speaking, during the millennium, everyone will know of the Lord from the least to the greatest. We will see natural reproduction for those that are in their physical bodies. Uh, labor will be uh, rewarded with fruitfulness. Uh, we'll have one language. There'll be no wars or conflicts. There'll be a peaceful society. And since Christ will be ruling on the throne, it'll be true and unprecedented justice like never before. And then, uh, obviously, we talked a lot about the spiritual characteristics where we will see global worship. The temple will be rebuilt. The Shekinah glory will return to the temple. The sacrificial system will be revived. We'll see the Sabbath and ritual feasts reinstituted. There will be perfect obedience under the new covenant as described in Ezekiel 36 and Jeremiah 31. And then Satan will be bound up in prison for that thousand-year period with no widespread spiritual deception. Uh, and then uh, last week we talked about predominant righteousness and the, the restoration of the Edenic uh, conditions. So again, the Bible essentially tells a story that comes full circle from the pre-fall uh, state in Eden to after the fall and ultimately back to redemption. So if you start in the bottom left, you see creation, starting with creation of the world. Uh, on the sixth day, he created man in his own image. And then the creation of the nations after the flood. Uh, then the creation of Israel with the unconditional promise to Abraham. And then, of course, the church, as we just talked about on the day of Pentecost. Uh, but all of that is corrupted uh, because the image of God and man is corrupted. And eventually, it's going to be restored. So you see, coming back down the right side, the rapture of the church, the restoration of Israel to the land, the retribution or judgment of the nations, and ultimately the redemption of all creation. Along the way in this journey that has now been 6,000 years since creation, God has a plan ultimately to bring himself glory. And, but his plan involves detailed, specific plans for all kinds of aspects of his creation. Obviously, that includes right in the center there a plan for the salvation of individual man, but that's not the, the end-all, be-all, or some total of the plan. See, those who don't understand the Bible from a dispensational perspective uh, tend to zero in on individual redemption, and they make everything about uh, election or about God's you know, saving mankind and so forth. And while that certainly is a pivotal part of his plan, that's not the end-all, be-all of the plan. The end-all, be-all is to bring himself glory. And it's only because of his grace that he chose us to save anybody along the way. God would, could, would have been fully justified in uh, sending everyone to hell because of our own free choice. You know, Adam and Eve were warned because of God's great love, hey, I don't want you to die, don't eat from that tree. But they did, and God had said, when you do, in the day you eat thereof, you will die. And so it would have been perfectly in keeping with God's character for him to, to leave it there. But of course, his love, his mercy, his grace... Uh, was extended. He got us out of the predicament that we got ourselves in. But that's the way God functions throughout human history. Uh, he has a plan for Israel that involves grace. You know, how many times has Israel as a nation rejected God and turned their backs on God, and yet God continues uh, to put forth that unconditional promise? God has a plan for angels and demons and the church. Uh, and so, but all along the way, He's bringing the Bible, bringing the, the created universe back to. Uh, a pre-fall uh, Edenic nature and state uh, in the new heavens and the new earth. And so that means that uh, the curse of sin, which of course extends beyond just you and I, it doesn't the, the sin, sin of our sin, the original sin, did not 
uh, was not limited in its effect to just mankind. It, it affects animals and plants, and it created weather problems. It created thorns on rose bushes. It created poison ivy. It created all kinds of tension between, uh, you know, the uh, created world. All of that will be removed when the old earth is destroyed and God recreates it in sinless perfection. So all of that uh, uh, in reference to uh, the restoration of the Edenic conditions. And then we see uh, along a similar vein the removal of the harmful environmental effects, the restoration of longevity. We talked about how people will live to be hundreds of years old, an increase in daylight. And that's where we left off last time. And I talked about the motif of darkness and light throughout Scripture. And, uh, and there will not be any night in the ultimate kingdom someday. And so we're going to pick up uh, this morning. We've got two more to talk about, and then we'll just open the floor for questions. But economic prosperity. So uh, that's kind of interesting, isn't it? Especially in the day in which we're living. The, the Luciferians are trying to destroy the U.S. economy. The fact of the matter is the U.S. economy has been on life support for decades, uh, and they're just waiting for the moment to pull the plug. Um, and it's looking more and more like that day is coming. Uh, but, of course, we can't uh, you know, say for sure what the timetable is. We know what the Luciferians' timetable, their desired timetable time is. It doesn't mean they're going to succeed because God is sovereign and he may have other plans. But at some point, we know from Scripture that we're going to enter into, after the rapture, that final seven-year period where Satan rules the world through the Antichrist. And in order to do that, they've got to destroy America. And so... But in the kingdom, we won't have to worry about that. Notice what the prophet Amos tells us. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper. We looked at this one earlier in a different context. The treader of grapes, him who sows seed. In other words, the harvest will be so great they will scarcely have time to finish harvesting the crops before it's time to plant the next one. Right? Uh, the mountains will drip with sweet wine and the hills shall flow with it. So we're going to see economic prosperity. Obviously, in Amos' day, a few hundred years before Christ in the ancient Near East, they didn't have banks and 401ks and you know stocks and bonds and all of that. So the, the language here speaks of the economy in language that was true to their day. But what we can take from this is that it will be a time of economic prosperity. <clears throat> Joel similarly says, the threshing floors shall be full of wheat, and the vats shall overflow with new wine and oil. You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied. Now contrast that with you know, the fears of uh, you know, lack of food today. You know, we're seeing the stage, again, I believe the stage being set I'm going to talk about this at that Elbert County event coming up for uh, the seven-year tribulation. And the World Economic Forum, of course, has put forth eight uh, goals that they want to see in place by 2030. And uh, I've talked about this at length in, in several settings, including the new book. But what, what is interesting is, true to Satan's form, and I was just talking with someone about this this week, a good friend of mine from up in Idaho, True to Satan's form, he's always trying to be God. He's trying to imitate God. And he wanted to take over the heavens, as you know, uh, and his pride you know, led him to try to usurp the throne. God kicked him out of heaven along with one-third of the angels that followed him. 
And since then, he's been trying to take over uh, the earth. And so for a short period, seven years, he will indwell, I believe, the, anti, the future Antichrist and, and, and you know, have his way, as it were. But of course, it'll be short-lived because uh, he's already been defeated, as Genesis 3.15 told us he would be. Uh, and uh, Christ is going to come back and you know, take over in perfect peace and justice. But what we see Satan trying to accomplish and what we see outlined in Scripture is sort of the opposite mirror image uh, not so much the opposite, but it's the mirror image of the, the true ultimate characteristics of the kingdom. In other words, Satan is trying to usher in a kingdom of his own in which he takes over the economy, takes over the, uh, you know, the, the weather, and, and you know, all of the things that you know, his influence has cursed, he's trying to take control of, and, and, uh, but not... Uh, according to God's divine design, not the way God wants it to be. So uh, he, you know, he, for example, in the uh, tribulation, uh, he's going to control commerce. So people will only be able to buy and sell if they take the mark of the beast. Uh, he'll control the world economy through uh, something similar to a digital currency or some type of uh, digital implant or something. We've talked a lot about the mark of the beast, of course, we as believers in the present church age will not be here during that time, but it's still part of Scripture and something that God wants us to study and understand. We should study the whole counsel of God. Uh, it's very relevant for understanding God's plan of the ages. And for those who aren't believers today and who may be left behind if the rapture were to happen today, they need to understand the reality of this. But that technology, uh, and I talked about this on Tuesday's podcast a little bit, uh, is, I think, part of the nefarious agenda behind a lot of these gene-editing bioinjections that they're, they're forcing on people. Um, but, you know, when Christ comes back and takes the throne, it'll be a return to complete freedom, complete success, complete prosperity. Uh, and again, you know, Satan's always trying to mimic that. So, you know, the number one uh, on the eight things that the World Economic Forum and Klaus Schwab are trying to do is... You know, you will own nothing and be happy about it. Well, uh, there's going to be prosperity under the satanic reset, but not for the average person, only for the Luciferian elite. Um, and uh, so you can see how they're trying to take over food, take over money, take over banking, take over control, take over travel, create a global surveillance police state. And... Um, but yet, as we read here, when, when Christ comes back and institutes the kingdom, it will be true freedom, true economic freedom. So we won't need, uh, we won't need to take up collections for the poor, for example. We won't need to store up long-term storable food, which I hope you're doing. Uh, we won't need to be dependent upon you know, getting to Walmart or the grocery store to be able to feed our family. Um, we will just be able to walk outside and pick raspberries or blackberries to our heart's content, right? That's what it's going to be like when Christ comes back. Uh, any questions or comments about that before we move on to number seven? Yeah. When was Satan given dominion over the earth? The question is, when was Satan given dominion over the earth? Well, he was. that's a good question because there's some different different views out there about the original fall uh, but I'll just you know explain the traditional understanding is that he was kicked out of heaven 
sometime after creation, probably very soon thereafter. In other words, we don't get the indication at all from Scripture that Adam and Eve were on the earth thousands of years prior to the fall. In fact, if you understand the table of nations and the genealogies, we can reasonably conclude, as I talked about in my, uh, when I talked about the World Economic Forum and their uh, timetable, uh, that the earth is roughly 6,000 years old. Not only that, but we, another indication is that God had said, be fruitful and multiply. Uh, had they been there very long, we, they would have had children prior to the fall. So it seems like very soon after uh, Satan, after creation, uh, Satan uh, usurped the authority of God in heaven. Perhaps he saw what God had created. Remember at the end, uh, God said everything was very, very good after he created Eve. And Satan coveted that. I want to be like God. God kicked him out. And then at that moment, he became the God of this age. And he set about uh, confronting uh, Adam and Eve in the form of a serpent. And, uh, and then, of course, they succumbed uh, of their own free will. And he's been the God of this age, the prince of the power of the air, all of that ever since. So, so I don't know if I want to take the time to go into... A second view, which is very intriguing, and I tend to lean that way, but you haven't seen a lot of writing about it. A friend of mine wrote his doctoral dissertation about it, and uh, it's pretty fascinating, but it may well be. Well, I'll just throw it out there, but I don't have a whole lot of the details at my fingertips because I haven't written anything about it myself. But another alternative is it could be that um, Satan's fall coincided with his temptation of Adam and Eve. In other words, we know that uh, angels could come and go from heaven to earth, especially prior to the fall. And uh, they, you know, uh, there was uh, general, uh, there was not general, there was absolute peace between man and animals in the garden. So Adam would, you know, go to Starbucks with a ferocious lion and they'd sit down and talk about the ball game last night. You know, there was no issues whatsoever. And that might explain, by the way, why when the serpent approaches Adam and Eve, they had a conversation. They didn't sense anything was up. They're used to talking to snakes, right? And that's why Satan took on that form. But in any event, the Satan's fall could have been the fact that he, in disobedience to God, approached Adam and Eve and lied to them and, and you know, put words in God's mouth on all those things. And so all of that might have happened at the same time. Traditionally, we tend to think of them as two separate acts. The Bible doesn't really give us a lot of detail about it. You know, we know from the prophets that Isaiah saw him fall like lightning, uh, Isaiah 14. So, you know, how did that happen and so forth? Uh, hard to say. Um, any other questions at this point? All right, and then one more. We, we're going to see universal access to Israel. You know, that's, uh, I bring that up simply because it's so different from today. You know, um, boy, you know, Israel is God's chosen nation. Um, and they, uh, uh, by the way, someone emailed me in the context of our Calvinism uh, discussion and suggested that uh, the fact that God chose Israel should show us that it's not a problem that God chose individuals. Well, first of all, I don't have a problem with God choosing individuals. As I've said many times, that's not the issue. My problem with Calvinism is the five points. 
I agree in election. I believe it's a biblical antinomy that God not only chose but gives us free will. And even though those things seem contrary to the human mind, I believe the Bible teaches them both. My issue is, is with the unconditional part that, uh, you know, the whole five points taken as a system make man completely passive and he couldn't, if you're elect, you couldn't reject the gospel. And if you're not elect, you couldn't get saved no matter how hard you tried. You know, you don't have a choice in the matter. So we're, I won't rehash all that we're talking about in our midweek service. But I did want to point out that really that's a, a disconnect. It's one thing to choose to, to, for God to choose a nation to be the apple of his eye and his chosen nation through whom he's going to bring the Messiah, through whom he's going to rule the world. It's another thing to condemn you know, half the world to hell and choose individuals for either heaven or hell. That's com two completely different uh, things. But God, Israel is God's chosen nation. But right now, uh, you know, if you think about the last uh, 60, 70 years since Israel became a nation again, May 15, 1948, you know, it's been nothing but chaos and war and conflict. And, you know, it's often been pointed out the, that the Israeli Defense Force and the Mossad and all of the Israeli security forces are some of the top in the world, and they have to be because they have so many enemies, people constantly coming against uh, Israel. And it's certainly, I, I've got lots of friends who, who lead, uh, you know, 10 or 12 different people that I know personally that lead Israel tours and tell stories about it, especially in the post-COVID world. Um, and it's, it's not, it, the picture you see is not one of just people just deciding on a whim, hey, I think I'll just cross over the border and go ma make a few visits and then come back and just freely come and go from Israel. Not at all. I mean, it's, it's uh, very difficult uh, to get in and out of Israel. I, a friend of mine just told a harrowing tale of taking a group over there and Several getting stuck because they got, uh, even though they weren't sick at all, they made them take a COVID test and claim that it was uh, positive, and so they got quarantined, couldn't see the rest of their group. It was all kinds of stuff. Not to mention the fact that even though Israel as a nation is God's chosen nation, and he has a future for national Israel, as we've been talking about, Christ is going to reign from the rebuilt temple in Jerusalem. Israel is going to become the center of the world's worship, the capital nation in the kingdom someday. Right now... Israel and the Jews are not in Israel in belief. They're not. They're there in unbelief. And so a lot of bad actors over there in Israel, a lot of bad people leading from Israel, a lot of people co-conspiring in Israeli government with the Luciferians right now to usher in the one world system. In fact, as it relates to the control of Irish scamdemic that the Luciferians rolled out, Israel was at the tip of the spear on that. They had like 99% you know, vaccination rate with the, you know, uh, the, the bioinjections. So uh, we need to sort of nuance our understanding of Israel and, and, and our understanding of Genesis 12. Yes, is, Israel has a future in God's plan. Yes, the Prince of Peace is going to rule from Israel. Yes, God loves his people. But right now, they're not, we're, we're in the church age right now. And right now, Israel, even though they're an ally and we should support uh, Israel, at least democratically for now, it's not like they can do no wrong. They, they make mistakes the same way the American government does. I mean, nobody would assume that every American politician is God-fearing, born-again believer who only wants the best for his people. I mean, re read chapter, I forget what chapter it is, but the one on depopulation in my latest book. I give example after example of American government turning on its own people and killing them. So we need to understand how different this is going to be, this, this seventh characteristic here is a biggie. It's, it's important that at a time when 
all kinds of problems going on in Israel, all kinds of, uh, un, in some cases, unjustified attacks on Israel, obviously, and a closed border and all of that. It's going to be universal access uh, to the Holy Land. And we see this in Jeremiah 3. At that time, Jerusalem shall be called the throne of the Lord, Yahweh. All the nations shall be gathered to it, to the name of the Lord, to Jerusalem. No more shall they follow the dictates of their evil hearts. So a, you know, a person, you know, wants to come into Israel, they're not going to have to worry, is this person, you know, a, a terrorist? Are they part of, you know, some Libyan faction? Are they being funded by, you know, Iran? What, what you know, no, there, it's going to be a time of unprecedented peace and, and justice. Yeah. The Bible talks about a remnant. Is there still a remnant with Israel? So the question is, the Bible talks about a remnant. Is there still a remnant with Israel? Absolutely. Uh, uh, the remnant principle runs throughout Scripture, uh, and it speaks not just of Israel, but of God's people. So obviously before Israel, you had Noah and his family were a remnant. Um, in the present church age, there's a remnant. How many of you would agree that you know, God-fearing, Bible-believing, born-again Christians constitute the minority in the world today. I mean, it seems pretty self-evident. That's the remnant principle. Uh, Jesus said, many are called, few are chosen. So it's, it's always that seems to be that God in, throughout history works in the minority. We can think of many uh, examples. The Israelites in going against Jericho or Daniel, or, I mean, Gideon and so forth, and the Midianites. So, um, but as far as Israel, that's interesting that you ask that because... A lot of people who don't believe in a future for national Israel are quick to point out, well, you know, all those records were destroyed. Nobody even can trace their genealogy back and so forth and so on. So how in the world are they going to know who's Jewish? Well, guess what? We don't have to know. God knows. God's the one that supernaturally brings them back. Look uh, at Matthew chapter 24. We've looked at this verse uh, multiple times over the last year and a half. But Matthew chapter 24 Jesus himself speaking says immediately after the tribulation of those days, so after Daniel's 70th week, he's just quoted from Daniel and, and mentions Daniel by name. After the tribulation, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken, the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the heaven and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Verse 31. And he will send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet, and they will gather together his elect, that's Israel, from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. That's the fulfillment of Deuteronomy 30, verse 3, Isaiah 27, 13, and many other Old Testament prophets that talk about in the day of the kingdom, Israel will be supernaturally regathered to the land. Uh, so what, what, what happened in 1948 as Israel, as Jews began returning from across the world to the land, uh, I don't believe is the fulfillment of that because it doesn't fit the description. You know, somebody from, you know, Russia or someplace else in Europe uh, deciding after the Balfour Declaration that they're going to pack up all their belongings, grab their children and grandchildren and start you know, riding by horse and carriage or whatever plane back to their homeland, that's not a supernatural regathering of angels that goes out and picks people up and deposits them back in the land at all. 
so some people say that that 1948 was uh, the fulfillment of uh, Ezekiel 37, because you know 37 is uh, dry bones, 38 and 39 in Ezekiel is Gog and Magog, and then 40 to 48, the rest of the book is all about the kingdom and the temple and the what we've been discussing here, the wonderful age of the millennium. And so some people like to point out that you know, maybe this was the beginning of the rattling of the bones coming together and the muscle and sinew being put on them, but then they'll f fully come back to life in the millennium. I, I don't even take it that way. I mean, that's, uh, that's fine that some people do. I respect that view, but I think that the dry bones aren't going to come back to life until the giver of life takes the throne, and that happens when Christ comes back. That's my view. Uh, so, so anyway, I just want to point out that the notion that because individual Jews may or may not be able to trace their lineage back and records have been lost and all that is completely irrelevant. God, the creator of the universe and the one who chose Israel to begin with, he certainly knows. If he knows the number of hairs on my head, then he knows you know, our genealogy and he can bring Israel back when the time comes. Any other uh, questions or comments? So, yeah. Matthew 24, he talks about gathering back the nation. Is it specifically to Israel? Yeah, is it? The question is in Matthew 24 when Jesus says, we'll regather the elect back to, to, uh, from the four corners of the earth. Is it specifically to Israel? Absolutely, yeah. They're going to return to the land. So look at, for example, Deuteronomy. Let's look at a couple of passages from the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 30. Verse uh, 3. Uh, then the Lord, or I'm sorry, verse chapter 30, verse 3. That the Lord will, your God, will bring you back from captivity and have compassion on you and gather you again from all the nations where the Lord your God has scattered you. If any of you are driven out to the farthest parts under heaven, from there the Lord your God will gather you and bring from the, and from there, he will bring you. So it's a geographic regathering. It's, it's from one part of the globe to another. And then again in Isaiah chapter 27, and every prophet in the Old Testament speaks of this. It's the ultimate fulfillment. Remember, uh, and I, you know, I don't think we got into this in this series. It's been so long, I can't remember. If not, I, I regret it because I have a whole presentation on the Holy Land and how uh, tracing the concept of the Holy Land, how God repeatedly says this is my land, my land, my land, and the, this uniqueness of this little piece of real estate as God's holy land. That's significant. They were given that land. They were promised that land all the way back in Genesis 15. So there's a, a heavy emphasis placed on the geography and the boundaries. And they crossed over the Jordan eventually, and they were supposed to occupy the land. And, but they never fully spread out to the ultimate uh, dimensions of the land because they constantly uh, caved in to the pressures of the pagan religions around them. They disobeyed God. They turned away from God again and again and again. And ultimately, after prophets, priests, kings, and judges, God brought the Messiah, Jesus, whom they also rejected. Uh, and, uh, but their rejection, as Paul makes clear in Romans, is not final. It's not permanent. God is a keeper of his covenants. He can be counted on. He's trustworthy. And someday, in fulfillment of his unconditional covenant, they are going to be brought back uh, into the land. So the land is a running theme throughout the Old Testament. And really the ultimate sort of 
prize, if you will, or the ultimate fulfillment of God's unconditional covenant program is being back in the land. I mean, that's not all there is to it, but that's sort of the emphasis. Uh, and so Isaiah 27, the last verse, so it shall be in that day, the great trumpet will be, bone, will be blown, and they will come who are about to perish in the land of Assyria, and they who are outcast in the land of Egypt, and shall worship the Lord in the holy mount at Jerusalem. So again, Assyria and Egypt there are just metaphors for the two, two of the leading enemies of Israel. Speaking of all, whoever their enemies are, they will no longer hold sway, and God will bring them back, and they will worship in the holy mount at Jerusalem. So yeah, it's definitely the nation. So, at that point, is all the nation saved, or is that prior to the So, the question is, at that point, is, is all the nation saved, or is that prior to the sheep and the goat? So, a couple of things. The, he's referring to, in, 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 at the Battle of Armageddon, in the second coming there, Jesus tells us in Matthew 25, at that time, he's going to separate the nations into sheep and goats. That's a separate judgment from the regathering of Israel into the land. Because that takes place on earth. And Jesus is basically saying to those believers who survived the tribulation in their physical bodies, he, he tells us, I'm going to say to you, Come ye, blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. That's the sheep. And of course to the goats, meaning the unbelievers at the end of the tribulation who are still alive, he's going to say, Depart from me into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. The Jews aren't going to be at that judgment because they, the believing Jews anyway, they will have already been gathered or simultaneously perhaps at that same event going to be supernaturally regathered and deposited in the land. So they won't have to kind of line up in the sheep line or the goat line. They're, they're the nation of Israel. They get regathered into the land supernaturally. So a believing Jew is what? A believing Jew is what? Absolutely. So the question is, I believe in Jew, the ones that get regathered back into land at the return of Christ. Absolutely, they have to believe in Jesus. Yeah. So today, and we're going to actually talk about this in our worship hour as we continue our discussion of Peter and Cornelius. I'm going to talk about what is the gospel. Uh, but today, in the present church age, the Bible is very clear. That's what my book, Getting the Gospel Wrong, is all about. It's, it's, it's one of the, I mean, it's, it couldn't be more clear. I mean, it's so simple a child can understand it. But today, the content of, of saving faith is believing that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, died and rose again for your sins. And He's the only one who can save you. Uh, as time goes on, there are other aspects of what precisely one must believe. And after the second coming, it's going to, be, it's going to have more of a messianic flavor. So you're not only just going to believe Jesus is the Savior, but that He's the King of kings and Lord of lords. You must understand that He's the Messiah, the, the messianic hope. But absolutely, it's belief in Jesus. Now, today, in the present age, a Jew who believes the gospel is no longer part of Israel. They're part of the body of Christ, right? There's Jew and Gentile in one body. But after the rapture, when the church age ends and God's focus shifts once again to the nation of Israel, then, you know, anybody who believes must believe, you know, through Israel and believe that Jesus is the coming Messiah and believe that he's the one who can save them. He's the Lamb of God and so forth. And then they... They're part of that, that nation. Awesome. Any of you got time for maybe one more question, if anybody has one? Yeah.
So the question is, during the millennium, those of us that are participating in the millennial phase of the kingdom in our glorified bodies, which will be the entire church, any believer saved in the present age, uh, and Old Testament saints, so Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, and tribulation saints who died, uh, will all be in our glorified bodies. They're resurrected at the second coming. We're resurrected at the rapture. Uh, is there any indication, the question is, that we go to and from heaven and earth. Yeah, I think there is. Um, now, when we get to the new heavens and the new earth, the eternal state, I'm going to spend some time talking about the new Jerusalem because there is a old school view among some dispensationalists that the new Jerusalem is, is in existence during this present millennium. But you've noticed I haven't brought that up because I don't think that's the case. There's actually no textual evidence for that. It's speculation. I tend to, to think that the new Jerusalem doesn't come into effect until the new heavens and the new earth. But some old school dispensationists thought that the New Jerusalem would be like a satellite city hovering above the earth during the millennium and that believers could come and go from that. I don't see that happening, but I do think we can come and go from heaven because we're, we're in our glorified bodies. So, yeah. Good question. The question is... Um, since the Bible says during the millennium there'll be a universal language, and again we see, as you referenced the Tower of Babel, we see the Bible sort of returning full circle and correcting all of the problems that the curse of sin brought. So the question is, will that be Hebrew? I don't think so, because it wasn't Hebrew in the garden, right? So the Jewish people didn't come into existence until after Abraham. So, uh, you know, I guess it could be, theoretically. We don't know, but uh, I tend to think... You know, the angels in the book of Revelation in anticipation of that are singing a new song. Some implies something previously unknown. So who, who knows? Uh, it would be speculation either way, but just looking at it from a linear timeline, I don't see it as being Hebrew, but I haven't ever actually studied it, so possibly there's an indication that maybe that does become God's chosen language. Yeah? I think speaking in tongues Yeah, the comment is maybe speaking in tongues in the early church age could have been uh, a precursor to that because everybody understood it in their own language. So um, my view on the, the uh, supernatural event that took place in the day of Pentecost and then carried over into the early days of the church until it sort of fizzled out and was no longer needed after we had the Bible was that it was the ability, it was the, the miraculous ability to speak in a known but unlearned language. So even that would be speaking in a language that existed, but you'd never studied it, and God supernaturally empowered you to be able to speak in that language, and then those who spoke that language could understand it. That's my understanding of glossolalia, the, the Greek word. So even that would be not something that was a new language on earth, but could God choose the Hebrew language to be the language for all of eternity? Sure, could be, but I, I, my gut would tell me no. All right, well, awesome. Well, thank you, guys. Let's take a break. Those of you live streaming, uh, you can tune back in at about 1025 Mountain Time, uh, but be patient. You'll notice on the live stream screen that our live stream exact start time depends on when I get back up to preach. Could be give or take 10 minutes. So thank you, guys. We'll see you back shortly.